Greetings, brothers and sisters. We come to the final section of the book of James in our study. Uh, it has been a helpful study as we've uh, engaged with the trial that we're all facing right now. James's instruction for us has been very helpful, uh, difficult and challenging in places uh, to put into practice, but nevertheless helpful uh, to change our perspective and the way that we think about what we experience. And we come to the final section of James where he focuses in really uh, intensely on the topic of prayer. And so before we uh, get into this passage and close out the book of James, uh, we should pray together. Uh, I should announce as well, just so you know what to expect uh, next Sunday, uh, Lord willing, Pastor Ken will uh, spend uh, one more message looking at the book of James, providing us a bit of a, a summary review and looking at some of the highlights through the whole book to close out our study. Uh, but would you pray with me now? Father, thank you for the opportunity to open your word. Thanks for the book of James and how helpful it's been to us uh, over these months. We're grateful for your uh, care for us and the way that you impact us through your word. Would you do that again uh, today as these uh, words go out over the internet and as people uh, open their computers and or smartphones and listen to uh, your word? Would you uh, provide the grace needed to connect this word with our hearts and with our lives. Uh, would you work in our uh, spaces where we live, each one of us, and would you make the changes that are needed? Help us to rely on you and to depend on you uh, for all that we need these days. Thank you again for our time uh, together, as it were, virtually. We're grateful that your word has power to change us, whether we're sitting in the same room or not. So grant grace as we open your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we look at this final section of James, chapter 5, verses 13 to 20, we're going to talk about prayer. And I'd like to open by discussing some of the problems of prayer. Uh, we all have problems with prayer, I think. Let me mention a few that are probably familiar to you. Uh, first, there's the problem of what we might call unanswered prayer. We ask God to do something in our lives, whether to heal a loved one or uh, to provide financially or uh, to make some change in our circumstances. And that change doesn't come. The healing doesn't come. And so we struggle and it can be a demotivator when we feel like uh, God is not hearing us or God is not answering our prayers the way that we ask them. A second problem of prayer is that we're talking to an invisible person. Uh, it's not the same kind of conversation that we might have with our spouse or our children or our parents or our friends or our coworkers. Uh, the fact that uh, we would talk to God and we, it's not the same as talking to someone who's here in, in the flesh. Uh, we talk to our spouse and we can see their facial expressions. We can see how they're responding to us, how they're hearing us. And then they can verbally immediately respond to us in a way that God does not typically do. And so uh, prayer is a different kind of conversation than we experience from day to day. And uh, that can be frustrating to us to not have the immediate response that we might like uh, from God is a challenge to us. It's a problem that we experience. Another problem, a third problem that we uh, experience from time to time is that we have this sneaking suspicion that prayer is actually a waste of time. Uh, is it really a good use of my time? to sit alone and talk to God? Shouldn't I be out there doing something to serve my community or to serve my brothers and sisters? Uh, shouldn't I be spending time with my family? Shouldn't I be studying the Bible more? Uh, and so we wrestle with, is it really a good use of my time just to talk to God? A fourth problem that we can experience with prayer is wrestling with what the scriptures actually say about prayer, in particular, uh, what Paul commands us to do, pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. Uh, to this day, every time I read that command, when I'm reading through 1 Thessalonians, my gut reaction, maybe my flesh reaction is, really, Paul, can you really mean what you're saying there? Or at least the question is, what does that mean? What does it look like to pray without ceasing? There are other things I've got to be doing. Obeying God in other ways, other than simply talking to God all the time, I can't carry on a, a conversation with God 100% of the time. So what does that mean? 
And all of these problems in our experience with prayer can make prayer difficult for us. It can We can find ourselves demotivated by all of these things in our experience that we don't really want to pray if we're honest. We don't really want to. Uh, we don't see the benefit of it, and we, we struggle. We have a hard time with that, if we're honest. But I think in all of our thinking and our wrestling with our experience in prayer, we have a tendency to overcomplicate prayer. Uh, in the scriptures, when the word pray or prayer is used, it simply refers to talking to God. It's nothing more complicated than that. Uh, we try to force in other ideas when we think about prayer, like we talk about listening to God in prayer. That's not a biblical idea, I don't think. We listen to God as he speaks through his word, but when we pray, we're talking to God. It's not a time for us to be listening to God. We're to listen to God by using our eyeballs and reading the scriptures. That's how God speaks to us primarily. And so prayer is our response to that. He speaks. He's initiated this conversation, if you will, that lasts our whole life long by speaking to us through the word. And we respond to what he says by our praying. But it's really quite simple. And in fact, the words that are used for prayer in both the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, basically mean asking God to do things in our lives. They're referring to requests, making requests of the great king on high. Uh, petitions, if you will. Now, there's all kinds of ways to talk to talk to God. We, we verbally praise him. We thank him for the good things that he does. We um, address him in all kinds of ways. But fundamentally, at the core, prayer is quite simply asking God to do specific things in our lives, asking God to be involved in certain ways. That's the basic fundamental idea of prayer in the Bible is asking God to do things. And so we shouldn't overcomplicate it beyond that. That's something that we can do truly throughout our day and throughout our life. We don't have to set, a, set aside 30 minutes or an hour to try to pray with God in that way. Not a bad thing to do necessarily from time to time, but to speak to God can happen in a moment. And you don't have to be in a certain place or in a certain posture to pray. It's really quite simply talking to God. And so the encouragement for us out of all of this and what we're going to see in this passage is to talk to God all the time. So let's see exactly how James shapes his closing instruction to us here. In the midst of trials, the proper response is going to include prayer. And that's where he closes out his emphasis here in his book. Uh, so we begin with uh, chapter 5, verse 13. Chapter 5, verse 13, which gives us a picture of talking to God in bad times and good times. James 5, 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Note the way he rhetorically asks his audience these questions. If we were gathered together in the same place, I might ask this question of you. Is any among you suffering? And I could ask you to raise your hands. And in the midst of what's going on in our world around us right now, I've, I'm sure many of you would be quick to raise your hand and to admit, yes, I am suffering. But I suspect some people would be a little bit hesitant to say, you know, my life's pretty good. I haven't been sick. My bank account hasn't suffered. I've got a good job. I've got security. I'm really safe. I don't really feel threatened in any way whatsoever. I thought, you know, I don't know. Am I suffering? Well, the word that James uses here is a very generic term. It literally means to feel bad. And so I could ask the question in this way. Is, do any of you feel bad? Is there anything in your life that you feel bad about? Is there anything in your world that you feel bad about? I bet a few more hands might go up in response to the question, is anyone among you feeling bad? Is anything going on in your life or in your world that somebody objectively could look at and say, that's bad? The response that is called for when that's happening in your life is to pray. Notice it's let him pray. That's one of these imperatives that we've seen throughout the book of James. It's a command. So when you're experiencing suffering of any shape or form, you're feeling bad in any way. There's a command, a responsibility in that moment. And it is to talk to God about it, to pray, to ask for God to help, to alleviate the suffering, to deal with the suffering, to be with you in the suffering, to talk to God about how you feel. 
It's right and good to express your feelings to God, to talk to him about how bad things are or how bad things feel. And so to pray to God is the right response. It's even commanded as an obligation or a responsibility in the midst of suffering. And, and notice the way that James frames this. He asks, is any among you suffering? And then he's going to ask, is any among you cheerful? Is anybody feeling bad? And is anybody feeling good? And so he's basically giving the extremes of our experience and our feelings and our perception about our circumstances. And both experiences, both ends of the spectrum, and I would say probably everything in between, the responsibility is to pray. And so no matter what's going on in your life, no matter how you're feeling, you have an opportunity to talk to God. But when he asks the second question, the form of prayer is a little bit different. Is anyone among you cheerful? Cheerful. The command is let him sing praise. The command is that a person who's feeling good about his life it would, that is that he would sing praise. Now, I know some of you don't really like to sing. Some of you don't really feel very good about or very excited about singing, uh, even when you're cheerful. Uh, your first response is not to burst out into song. And you might be concerned when you're gathered around other people, maybe even in your home with your spouse, that you, you don't want to disturb them by your singing. I would probably put myself in that category. Uh, and uh, you don't really want to sing very often, but you need to get over that. We all do, because this is a command. It's a responsibility for us. Now, the point underneath this is that we would talk to God. Even when we feel good about life, we've got something to talk to God for, about. And it is that he is to be praised in those moments. We're to express our gratitude to God. We're to express our praise, our worship of God verbally and even uh, musically. And so singing is to be called up from the depths of our heart. And for men and many people, let's not genderize it here, but uh, for, for some people who are a little maybe self-conscious about their voices, this does not come naturally. This is not something that we often are eager to do necessarily. But the call is that we would get over that and we would actually raise our voices, make a joyful noise, as some of the Psalms say, a joyful noise, not necessarily a good or harmonious noise, but a joyful noise. We would actually lift our voices beyond the simple speaking in monotone, talking to God this way, you are good, you are good, you are good, but that we would actually sing to God. It doesn't have to sound good to anybody around you, but the, it's the, the important part is that we're expressing verbally with words our praise to God when things are going well, because isn't it a tendency for us to, when things are going well, to kind of ignore God or take him for granted and to forget that he ultimately is responsible for whatever good thing is going on in your life. If you have a moment or a season where things are going really well for you and you feel really good about life and your position in life, God is the one who's ultimately responsible for that. Even in the midst of your hard work, God gets the credit and we ought to give him credit in song as well as in prayer. And so talking to God in the extremes of life and in everywhere in between, uh, there's an opportunity to talk to God no matter how you feel, whether you feel good, whether you feel bad, talk to God about it and talk to God in appropriate ways. If you're feeling bad, tell God you feel bad. Tell God you don't like what you're going through uh, and ask for his help. Ask for his help in the midst of the struggles. When you're feeling good about life, when things are going really well and you're really content and you're really happy, give praise to God. Thank him for what he's doing because he's responsible for the good in your life. Now, James then turns to a specific situation of suffering in verse 14. And that's really where he wants to focus here is a specific kind of trial, specific kind of suffering that we all know all too well. And so verses 14 and 18, the call is, Call the elders, talking to God in the case of severe sickness. Now, I'll justify that label in just a moment, but he's describing a situation where we are to call the elders of the church to pray. Uh, let's read these verses, 14 to 18. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, 
Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again. Heaven gave rain, the earth bore its fruit. So uh, we're presented with a new situation here. Is anyone among you sick? And I believe that James is describing a, a, a situation where a person is too sick to pray for oneself. Too sick to pray for oneself. Let me give you five reasons from verses 14 and 15 why I think that's the specific situation James has in mind. This person is too sick to pray for oneself. And let me just say, some of you may not know what this is like. Some of you may not know what it's like to have such deep, intense, bodily, physical pain that you can't even pray. You can't think straight to string two sentences together that make any sense. I know what that's like in my own body, and I've walked with people in my own life who know what it's like to experience chronic pain or a, a, an injury or an illness that's so extreme that it's so debilitating that they can't even carry on a conversation, much less talk to God in any sensible way. And so I, that's a real scenario for me. And I think that's what James is describing. Here are five reasons from the text why I think it's that specific issue that James is focusing on. Number one, the sick person summons the elders rather than going to them. So he doesn't, the, the instruction is the sick person doesn't need to go to the elders where they might be at the gathering of the body of believers, but instead he is to call them to come to him. Second reason is that the elders are commanded to pray and not the sick person. In verse 13, he said, is anyone, anyone among you suffering? He must pray. The command is for the sick person or the, uh, the suffering person to pray. But in this case, he doesn't command the sick person to pray. Instead, he commands the elders to pray. A third reason is that the elders are to pray over him, which may imply that the sick person is bedridden. Uh, we commonly use the, uh, the phrase to pray over someone or to pray over a matter. But truly, in all of Scripture, this is the only place that specific phrase is used to pray over someone. And it may be a literal, physical description so that the elders are gathered and they're standing and they're praying literally above or over the person who's lying on the mat or lying on the ground. And so uh, the person may be bedridden. A fourth reason is that the word used for sick usually describes an intense weakness. And most of the time, it's an intense bodily weakness. And a fifth reason, finally, is that the sick, sick person's faith is not mentioned, only the elder's faith. The prayer of faith is spoken of in verse 15, and that's the prayer of the elders, and therefore the faith of the elders that's being described. And so this, this person is so sick, it seems, that they're not even able to express or verbalize their faith in a coherent way perhaps. And so those five reasons together suggest to me that the situation that James is specifically addressing is someone who is too sick to pray for himself. Now, having said that, that doesn't mean that we couldn't extend this passage and say that it is totally right and totally good for anybody experiencing any kind of sickness to summon the elders to pray for them and to anoint them with oil even, as we talk about the significance of that in just a minute. Of course we can do that. We have the freedom to do that. But James is focused on a very specific situation, and it's important to consider what James is uh, addressing specifically and then make extended applications from that. So it's totally appropriate if any of you in the body, when you fall ill, call the elders and ask us to pray over you in this specific way. We would be glad and delighted to do such a thing. Now, he goes on in the passage, and he talks about elders, and we see here elders as intercessors in verse 14. The command is that the elders must pray over the sick person. And so this is a special responsibility given to the elders of the church. Notice that. What's interesting here to remember is that James doesn't say, summon someone with the gift of healing in your church. Now, James is written as the earliest scripture in the New Testament, most likely. Very early probably before, significantly before, the church in Corinth was even founded. And I mentioned the church of Corinth because it's 1 Corinthians chapter 12 in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth where he mentions this idea of a gift of healing. And so James doesn't have that on his mind at all. 
Instead, James is thinking about the normal operation of the church from his day throughout until Jesus returns. And so this is the regular responsibility given to the elders specifically in every church of every season of history. So that elders, note the plurality there, are to be established in the churches. And one of their responsibilities, the only one James actually focuses on here, is the responsibility to pray and to intercede on behalf of those who can't intercede for themselves in certain ways. And so the elders here are presented as intercessors. We have a responsibility to discharge. We are delighted to do that, as I think I can speak on behalf of the elders of Alfred Allman Bible Church. We are delighted and have spent a great amount of time, especially in these past few months where we've been away from the body in certain ways. We've been delighted to pray for you. Uh, that's one of the things that we have been able to continue to do, whereas other aspects of our shepherding responsibilities we've not been able to do as consistently or as uh, we might like to. But we have diligently and will continue to diligently pray for you as the body, as the flock. We take this responsibility not only very seriously, but as a great joy. So thirdly, we're, we're introduced to this idea of anointing with oil. Notice that in verse uh, 14, the command is they must call, the sick person must call for the elders of the church and the elders must pray over him. That's the command. But then there's this anointing him with oil that's attached to the praying. But notice the, it's the, the only thing commanded is the praying. Anointing is supposed to kind of come alongside as a subordinate uh, uh, action that goes along with the praying. But the command is prayer here. But the question is, what's what's going on here? What's the significance of this anointing with oil? Well, first, let's, let's talk about what's going on. What would this look like physically, visibly? Let me try to sketch out to you what I think the procedure would look like. So you have a group of elders. Someone who is severely sick would call for the elders, or maybe a loved one would summon the elders to come to where the sick person is laid up. The elders would stand over the person. And then one elder out of the group would say a prayer and pray for the sick person. And we'll see in verse 15 in just a second uh, that James actually tells us what the elder should be praying, what he should be asking God to do. Uh, and while, while one of the elders is voicing this prayer, another elder is a, a, applying oil, anointing with oil. Uh, applying the oil to the sick person. The way the Greek text is worded indicates that these two actions, the praying and the anointing, should happen simultaneously at the same time. So that's what the procedure could look like. Now, we need to consider the meaning of the word used for anointing here. When we think of anointing in the Bible, the first thing that probably comes to mind is occasions in the Old Testament where a king was anointed. For example, remember the story of David. When Samuel came to his home and anointed David to be the next king of Israel, do you remember how it happened? Samuel had a horn, like a ram's horn, and he had filled it with oil. And David was down before him, and Samuel poured the oil on David's head. That action signified that God had chosen David to be the next king. That's not this word that James uses in James 5.14. Instead, the word for anointing here is not to pour on, but it's to rub or smear on. You can think of it like you might put oil on someone's shoulders to give them a massage. That's the kind of action that's being described. It's applying the oil to a person's skin, whether the head or the hands or some other part of the body doesn't really specify. But James is describing rubbing on oil specifically, olive oil specifically. So what's the significance? What is this supposed to signify? Now that is a bit difficult to answer. Oil can be used symbolically in the Bible to signify different things. Here's what I think is going on. I think James might have in mind oil connected to the very heart of the mission of Jesus, the mission of the Messiah as described in Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 to 3, Jesus quotes these verses in Luke chapter 4 in his very first synagogue sermon and said that these verses were talking about him. So here's the mission of the Messiah summarized from Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3. 
The Spirit of Lord Yahweh is upon me. Now, let's pause there for just a moment. The me, Isaiah the prophet, is speaking as a representative of this messianic figure, this figure that he's described in his book, in his, in his messages, in the later part of his messages, as the servant of the Lord, the servant of Yahweh. In the earlier part of the book of Isaiah, chapters 1 through 39, he's referred to this same person as the descendant of David, the, the branch or the root of Jesse, the descendant of Jesse, the descendant of David, ultimately, who was to come. In the latter portion of the book of Isaiah, chapters 40 through the end of the book, he describes this figure as this, the uh, servant of the Lord, the servant of Yahweh. So Isaiah is speaking for him, at, at kind of quoting him in a certain sense. The spirit of Lord Yahweh is upon me, the Messiah, because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me. And then verses 2 and 3 are going to go on to describe what God has sent the Messiah, what God is sending the Messiah to do. And so we read these words in verse 3 of Isaiah 61. To grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of Yahweh, that he may be glorified. So the point here is that God sends the Messiah into the world to bring restoration to those who mourn. Mourning is a reflection of those who are under the power of sin and death. Mourning uh, is an appropriate response when you sin. If you think about it, as an act of repentance, you mourn and you grieve because you've offended God. But it's also the case, of course, that mourning is an appropriate response to death. When we lose someone to death, we grieve and mourn. And sickness is bound up in that. Sickness is one of the primary results of the fall. Sickness is one of the primary signs that we are still living in a world dominated by sin and death. We're living under the domination of sin and death because we know, we know that because people still get sick and die. So the mission of the Messiah is to fix that to bring relief. And one of the images that's used here is that he will give the oil of gladness to those who mourn. So how does that connect to James 5.14? I think there's some significance that it's the elders who are called upon here specifically rather than just any group of brothers and sisters from the body. The elders are given the responsibility of representing the Messiah in this action. The Messiah is the one who is promised to bring this ultimate relief the oil of gladness. And so in the case of severe sickness, when someone is perhaps on their deathbed, the elders come and as a physical and a tangible and a smellable uh, token that is for the benefit of the sick person, they apply olive oil to the body. What that sick person should receive from that is that the elders are giving him a token of the fulfillment of the messianic promises, specifically the messianic promise that holds out the hope of full physical restoration of the body, total and complete healing. Now, I think that way partially because of verse 15 here. Verse 15 begins by saying, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. So here we see the prayer of faith and the promise of salvation and resurrection, the beginning of verse 15. It seems like such a blanket promise. No exceptions, no caveats. It's a promise, a guarantee. The prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. So I believe that this is what the elders are supposed to be asking God to do. They're supposed to be praying the promise of God here, this specific promise. So one of the elders should verbally ask God to save the one who is sick, asking the Lord to raise him up. But it's interesting the way James has worded this. By wording it this way, it could seem like James is being a little bit sneaky, but he's not being sneaky. He's being theologically precise. It seems like James has given us an out so that the elders may pray for this, and if God doesn't, immediately and miraculously heal the sick person, well, we were asking God to save the person and to raise him up. So there's kind of a double meaning in those words. We're asking God to save the one totally, to raise him up, as in 
to resurrect him on the last day. So if God doesn't heal the person immediately, that doesn't mean that God hasn't kept his promise. And that doesn't imply that there's anything wrong with the sick person's faith or the elder's faith, for that matter. So going back to the anointing for just a minute. If the elders are asking God to fulfill these glorious and final promises, the messianic promises of total salvation, physical restoration, and physical resurrection, then it makes sense that the elders would apply oil to this person as a symbol, as a token that the sick person could feel in their body physically. Because if the person is so sick that they can't pray, it's possible that they're so sick that they can't even perceive the prayers of the elders. So to benefit them and to show them that the elders are asking God to fulfill the messianic promises, oil is applied as a physical token of those promises for the future. The elders are asking God to do it, and the oil gives a physical, tangible symbol that he's going to do it. Now the phrase, the prayer of faith, is interesting, but not difficult. James has already told us about the prayer of faith back in chapter 1, if you recall, where he first mentioned the issue of prayer in the midst of trials or prayer in suffering. Uh, chapter 1, verse 2, commanded us, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. And then he talked about the significance of trials, how they produce steadfastness, and steadfastness needs to have its ultimate uh, outcome, uh, making us perfect and complete. But James recognizes that the process doesn't always work like that. And the reason it doesn't always work like that is because we might be lacking something. And what we're lacking in particular is wisdom. And so we need wisdom. That's the very thing we need. And so how do we get wisdom? James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. And so you realize you lack wisdom in the midst of a trial? Ask God for wisdom. He is the one who gives wisdom as a gift to his people. But then he goes on in verse 6 and he says, but you've got to ask in a certain way. He must ask in faith with no doubting. And if you remember back to our message so many months ago now at the beginning of this book, we talked about that word for doubting. And it's not, it doesn't mean to have uncertainty or a lack of clarity as to what God's going to do or, or a sense of uh, no confidence. It's a word that means to be divided internally, to be divided in one's heart. And so the idea is that uh, you, you know you're supposed to ask for wisdom because James has told you to. And so you ask for wisdom while internally you don't really want wisdom. You just want something else like the trial to be over. And so you're praying with divided motives. You don't really want what's coming out of your mouth. What's coming out of your mouth doesn't match your desires, doesn't match the insider's hypocrisy there. And so James is condemning that kind of praying. The opposite of that is praying with faith, trusting God when we pray and ask him for wisdom. So here in chapter 5, praying with faith has two aspects to it. Refer referring to chapter 1, we must pray believing, believing that God is good, that he gives generously, that he's got a single-minded intention to do us good. So in this case, in James 5, the elders need to pray for the sick person, believing that God has a single-minded intention to do the sick person good. Secondly, the elders need to believe the promises as they ask God to do what he's promised to do. So I don't believe this means that the elders need to have a certain conviction that God intends to miraculously and immediately heal this person in response to their prayers. Many people teach that, but I don't believe that that's what's being referred to here. The elders need to believe that God will fulfill the promises. What promises? These promises. God will save the one who is sick in response to the prayer of faith, and the Lord will raise him up. So the promises are pushing our thinking out to the last day. James has so often pushed our attention further out into the future. He wants us to look forward. Our faith has this future orientation, as we talked about last week. We're always looking forward toward the final restoration of all things, the final fulfillment of all the promises of God. You see, even when God does miraculously and immediately heal a person in response to our prayers, it's only a token of the future and final physical restoration to come. 
It's glorious. I don't mean to minimize it at all. It's something we need to give thanks for whenever it happens. But we need to realize that the significance of that is not just that the person gets better, but it's more that we have a token, an encouragement toward believing what is to come in the end. Because you know what? That person is going to get sick again. They're going to die. And so the significance of God healing someone miraculously and immediately is a wonderful thing to be grateful for. But we need to realize that it's only a token. It's meant to push our hope further that someday sickness won't be a problem for us anymore. It won't be something we have to worry about or deal with or struggle with. It will be out of the picture completely. And that's where James wants the elders to set their attention when they're praying for a sick person. The elders need to hold on to and believe the promise of God here that he will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up on the last day. And if he does it now, wonderful. But even the sick person needs to have that hope, not just that they might get better in the moment, but that their body will be radically transformed so that the body will no longer suffer with sickness. Now he turns a little bit of a corner in verse 15, and he turns to the situation when sickness is the result of sin. When sickness is a result of sin. So he raises the issue there at the, in the rest of verse 15. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And what's this about? Why does he go there? Well, James recognizes, like the rest of the New Testament, that sometimes, sometimes, sickness is a result of sin. And I say it like that carefully. It could be the result of sin in different ways. For example, uh, if, if a person abuses alcohol and then they get liver disease, that sickness, that liver disease, is a result, a consequence of their sinful behavior. But it could be, uh, sickness could be a result of sin in a different way. It could be brought on as a judgment or an act of discipline for a genuine Christian for their sin. Now, we're, we know this specifically from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 29 and 30. Let me remind you of what Paul says there. For anyone who eats and drinks, talking about the Lord's Supper, without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. So Paul says that the reason that some of the Corinthian Christians are sick, and even some have died, is because God is bringing discipline, a disciplinary judgment into their lives because of their sin, because of the sinful way they've been engaging in the Lord's Supper. We don't need to go into the details about what's going on there, but that reality is always a possibility. And so one of the things that James is doing here is encouraging us to make the best use of our sickness uh, for when we're laid up like this, when life has to put, be put on hold because of a sickness, uh, you know, we miss work because we're sick and we've got to kind of recover and recuperate at home, not doing the things that we normally do because our body is broken and weak or contagious and can, could contaminate others. James is suggesting that we have a moment, an, a unique opportunity for self-examination. Now, I'll be honest, that's not how I typically use my sickness. When I'm sick, I'm laying on the couch watching Netflix uh, or Disney or something. I'm watching movies to distract myself from what's going on in my body. But James says that a better way to use one's sickness would be to take some time to examine oneself to see if there's any sin that we are not dealing with, that we have not acknowledged in our lives and we're not seeking to repent of. Because it could be, it's possible that the sickness we're experiencing is somehow connected to sin that we are not acknowledging or uh, seeking to repent from. Now, it's impossible to know that ahead of time. And it's impossible for someone outside the situation to really make that known for sure. Instead, when we get sick, we should take the opportunity to examine ourselves honestly, and if we find anything there, 
the right response is to confess. And the promise is that there's forgiveness for us. Because of course there is, right? We are forgiven sinners. If we know Jesus Christ, if we have a relationship with God through Jesus, all of our sins have been judicially forgiven. They're not being held against us in any way. But there is this sense in which our relationship with our Heavenly Father is affected by sin that's not being dealt with. And so James says, when you're sick, you have an opportunity to address that, an opportunity to slow down with the rest of your life, examine yourself and take stock and repent of anything that you find there. And you can enjoy the fatherly relational forgiveness uh, that he extends very graciously, very eagerly, very freely to us when we sin as his children. Now, from there, he, he starts to step out of his specific example of somebody who's laid up with severe sickness. Turning in verse 16, he broadens an application to the whole church. Verse 16 gives us a picture of dealing with sin as what one commentator calls preventive medicine. Preventive medicine. Verse 16 begins with the word, therefore. It's a huge and important therefore. If you're reading the King James Version or the New King James Version, you don't see it there. They've left it out, and that is unfortunate. There is a tight connection between what James says in verse 16 to what James says in verse 15. So therefore, confess your sins to one another, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, the you in that last phrase is plural, that y'all may be healed. And so he's talking about health in the body more generally. So he's saying when you're, when you're, when a person is laid up on a sick bed and they have an opportunity to, con- to kind of examine themselves and think through and confess sins and enjoy God's forgiveness in that moment, he's saying more generally throughout life, if we want to maintain the health of the church, and he means not only spiritual health, but also physical health, then as an ongoing, regular practice of the church, we ought to be confessing our sins to one another. That is a a way of cultivating health in the body, and it may even be seen as preventive medicine, that we are uh, if we are confessing our sins and acknowledging when we fail or when we hurt one another, we are putting up barriers to the kind of disciplinary sickness that sometimes come among the people of God. And so if you don't want that to happen, if you don't want 1 Corinthians 11, 29, and 30 in your church, well, how do you prevent that? Well, the idea is that we are regularly opening our lives to each other. You see, the truth of the matter is this, and you know this just as well as I do. Many people come to church wearing masks. Now, I hesitate to even go here, but when we gather together again, we may be physically, literally, some of us at least, wearing masks physical masks, and that's not what I'm talking about. But you know, and you may be guilty of this yourself, that some people come to gather together with other believers on Sunday after Sunday who are not opening themselves up, who are not showing their true selves. There is a reason, a real reason, that people who are non-believers, that people who are out there in the world, believe that the church is full of hypocrites, Because many churches, all churches, do experience hypocrisy. All believers experience hypocrisy. But some people come to church with an intentional hypocrisy. They're intentionally wearing a mask over their spiritual lives. They've got suffering going on at home, conflict in their family, conflict in their marriage, sin in their lives, and they come putting on a smiling face, wearing their Sunday best, Everything looks polished and beautiful, and they're not engaging honestly with other believers. That's what James is talking about here, the opposite of that. We should be seeking to be authentic and open with each other. If you're struggling in your life, whether it be struggling with some sin that you can't seem to shake, struggling because you're discouraged or you're depressed, or you've got serious conflict going on in your relationships, Don't come to church on Sunday morning with a smile on your face. Don't pretend everything is okay. Be honest and open yourself up, particularly in the area of if you're struggling with sin. 
Now, James is not encouraging that we, we have this time during our service where people will come up to the front of the front of the building and in front of everybody air their dirty laundry. That's not what James is envisioning here. Instead, he's envisioning a reality that when we're really struggling with something, we open that part of ourselves up. We shouldn't be having, uh, we shouldn't be actively uh, holding secrets where we keep some parts of our lives closed off from our brothers and sisters in the church. We need to be open with one another about our struggles and about our failures even. This is the way to cultivate health in a body. An unhealthy, you show, show me a church that's full of people who don't really know what's going on in each other's life, and I will show you an unhealthy church. James says, don't do that. Well, then at the end of verse 16, we've got a very famous line. It's on coffee cups and mugs and posters about prayer. And the question on the question I'd like to raise about this statement is, is James talking about the power of prayer or the power of God? This sentence that closes verse 16 is made up of five Greek words. And I think a first year Greek student would recognize all five words. But how they're put together makes this sentence a little bit difficult uh, to understand. Here's the main question. There are several, but here's the main question about this sentence. Is James highlighting the power of prayer itself? We often speak of the power of prayer, and this is the verse that gives us justification for that. The English Standard Version that I'm reading communicates that idea. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And I think this is the most common way to think of and understand this sentence. But another way of viewing it is possible. It's possible that James is actually highlighting the power of God, the power of the Lord who answers prayer, even as he charges and motivates his audience to pray. So let me offer a different way of translating this verse. If you're reading a different Bible translation, you might see something even different. But here's the key difference and the key distinction. Here's how I would translate the phrase to bring that out. A righteous man's request is very strong when it is being empowered. The last phrase, which the ESV translates as it is working, I understand to be a passive verb in Greek. When it is being empowered. And the implication is that the one who is empowering the righteous man's request is the Lord himself. We've already seen the Lord's active involvement throughout this passage. When James says the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, we recognize that it is the Lord who saves the sick in response to the prayer of faith. It's the Lord who promises to raise him up. It's the Lord who promises to forgive the one who has sinned. It's the Lord who promises to heal. Even in Elijah's example that we'll look at next, it was the Lord who controlled the rain, causing it to stop for more than three years and then to start again. And in the final two verses of the book, we'll see the Lord at work yet again. So here James may be pointing to the same thing that his brother Jude does and the same thing the Apostle Paul does by using the phrase praying in the Spirit. That is praying empowered by the Holy Spirit. So what makes praying effective? The Holy Spirit. So James's motivation here is quite simple. Pray because God works. Pray because the Lord answers prayer. Now, by referring to a righteous person's request, the prayer of a righteous man, I don't think James is suggesting that God, uh, that for God to answer your prayers, you have to be an outstanding righteous person. Rather, going back to James's teaching in chapter two, a righteous person is a true believer. A person who, like Abraham in the Old Testament, has been counted righteous by his faith. People who have been counted righteous do seek to obey God, though. They show their faith by their works. And that leads to James's final Old Testament example, Elijah. Elijah's example, verses 17 and 18. Now, what's so fascinating about this example is that to ask the question, why this story rather than all the other amazing stories in Elijah's life. In so many of the other stories, Elijah's praying is actually featured. He prayed 
to raise uh, the, 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 the child from the dead. He prayed to call down fire from heaven against the prophets of Baal. And yet this story, 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18, about the rain and the drought, the text in 1 Kings doesn't actually explicitly draw attention to Elijah praying at all. So why does he pray? Why does uh, James point to this story above all the others? Let me give you three reasons. Number one, Elijah is an example of a righteous man. So he could have picked any story, but why Elijah as an example? Well, he's an example of a righteous man. He sought to obey God's word, particularly in a time when the rest of the people were not obeying God's word. Secondly, as James points out there in verse 17, he is a man with a nature like ours. He's a man of similar feelings or similar sufferings. Think about what happens right after the, the, the return of the rain in response to Elijah's prayer. Jezebel comes after him, threatens him, and he ran for his life. And then in that case, he despaired of his own life and he asked God to kill him, which was a prayer that God did not answer. Or at least he answered by saying no. And in fact, ultimately no, right? Because Elijah didn't die. So interesting reality there. But the point is, Elijah experienced these terrible, terrible lows in the midst of when his life is threatened, when things are going bad, he doesn't respond well. That's like you and me. <laughs> so he's a good example in that regard. We tend to think of Elijah and put him up on a pedestal as this great prophet. But when we look at the details of his life, he really is, he responds only human. But it's the third reason that I think points to this story specifically as a reason that this is a good example for us. He prays in this story for what God has promised. He prays the promises of God. He prays the promises of God. How does this work? It's important to remember the context of Elijah's appearance in biblical history. Ahab has just become the king of Israel, and the narrator of 1 Kings summarizes Ahab's reign like this in 1 Kings 16.30. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of Yahweh, more than all who were before him. When that kind of king is ruling the people, what should we expect from God? We should expect some measure of judgment. Why should we expect that? Because in the Mosaic Law, God laid out several curses that he would bring down upon the people when they rebelled against him. Deuteronomy 28.15 introduces these curses, and curses are promises that God is going to do something bad, harmful, that hurts people in judgment against their rebellion. Deuteronomy 28.15, but if you will not obey the voice of Yahweh your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And here's one particular curse in Deuteronomy 28.23. And the heavens over your head shall be bronze, and the earth under you shall be iron. That is the promise of a lack of rain and a drought and your crops failing. So as Ahab wickedly rules the northern kingdom Israel and leads them into government-established idolatry, presumably for several years, and then Elijah shows up in 1 Kings 17.1 announcing a drought. 1 Kings 17.1. Now, while this verse doesn't explicitly speak of Elijah's praying, it is, re it is a reasonable inference. Look at what Elijah says to Ahab, 1 Kings 17, 1. As Yahweh, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now, when Elijah refers to himself as standing before Yahweh, he's describing himself as a genuine prophet, one who is in the counsel of Yahweh. He's claiming that God shares his plans with him to share with the people as God's spokesman. But I don't think we should assume that Yahweh has delegated authority over the rain to his prophet. Instead, we should recognize what I think James recognized, that Elijah would be praying for the drought to come in fulfillment of the promise in Deuteronomy 28-23. As I think about this story, I wonder how they'd know that they were experiencing a drought. There's no indication that God told Elijah ahead of time that the drought would last more than three years. Instead, I wonder if Elijah continued to pray over the course of the three-year period, asking God to maintain the drought 
to continue expressing his anger toward Ahab and Israel? If so, the goal would have been for Ahab and the people to repent of their idolatry, right? But even over the course of three years of God doing exactly what he promised to do in response to their rebellion, they did not repent. That's when we come to 1 Kings 18, verse 1, where God reveals to Elijah that he's about to end, about to send the rain and end the drought, an act of incredible mercy toward an unrepentant king and an unrepentant nation. Then we read about Elijah's contest with the prophets of Baal. If I wanted to point to a prayer story in Elijah's life, that's the one I probably would have pointed to. The narrator specifically highlights Elijah praying and God responding with fire from heaven to consume a water-soaked offering. James skips right over it and goes to the return of the rain. Again, I think his primary purpose in doing so is to highlight Elijah praying the promises of God, asking God to do what he promised to do. So in 1 Kings 18, 1, God tells Elijah that he's about to send the rain. Then in 1 Kings 18, 42, we read these words at the end of the verse. Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. That sure sounds like a posture of prayer to me. You probably remember the rest of the story. Elijah sends his servant to look toward the sea, and he sees nothing out there. Sends him again and again, seven times. And I assume Elijah must have been praying the whole time. Finally, on the seventh time, the servant sees in the distance a small cloud. And then came the promised rain. Elijah was a righteous man who sought to obey God, who suffered from the same weaknesses, uncertainties, and frailties of humanity that we do, as illustrated in the very next story, where he flees for his life from Jezebel and asks God to kill him. And he prayed the promises of God, asking God to do what he had promised to do. In our weaknesses, uncertainties, and frailty, as we seek to obey God, we too should ask God to do what he's promised to do. James closes with a word about restoration, an act that also needs to be attempted with much prayer. Verses 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, this whole book is after this goal. This whole book, James recognizes that there are people in his audience, people in the churches that he's writing to, who believe they know Jesus or who are pretending to know Jesus, but really don't. They are deceived. And this whole book has been pushing on them to repent and to genuinely know Jesus, to trust him. And so here, this final word presents that goal in specificity. The wandering that's described here may actually be being led astray or being deceived. It's the same word that James used back in chapter 1, verse 16, where James commanded his readers do not be deceived. James adds a note of hope to followers of Jesus who succumb to deception, or even people in the church who are not followers of Jesus who succumb to deception or are self-deceived. And he lays the responsibility on the rest of the church to bring such a one back. So James closes with a word about assurance. David Platt has something helpful to say on this point. I'm going to quote him at length. He writes, how does God keep us in his family? That is, how does God guard us from ever wandering away from him? How does God preserve our salvation to the end? The answer James gives to the church is through you. Eternal security is accomplished through community. How does God preserve his people? The answer is, in part, through his people. The church is one of the God-ordained means God uses to keep us faithful. God is sovereign and he does the preserving, but he does it through the church, looking out for, caring for, and loving one another to keep one another from sin. This is yet another reason we ought to be deeply involved in each other's lives in the church. God has ordained brothers and sisters who will share life with you to keep you close to him, to keep you obedient to his commands, and to preserve you until the Lord comes back. James says that this work of restoration will save his soul from death. The word soul refers to the whole person. 
like everywhere else in James, I believe he is referring to eternal salvation here. James is frequently referred to folks in the churches who might not know Jesus. Rather than just letting them go their own way or ignoring them in their plight, James here commands and encourages a rescue mission. Now, we know it is the Lord who saves sinners, but the Apostle Paul repeatedly speaks of his and others' labors to save sinners. In 1 Corinthians 7, 16, he raises the possibility of a believing spouse saving her unbelieving spouse. In 1 Timothy 4, 16, he encourages Timothy in his work of preaching and instruction in the church of Ephesus, indicating that his labors will save both yourself and your hearers. And in both 1 Corinthians 9.22 and Romans 11.14, Paul speaks of his own hopes to save some people through his preaching and ministry. Paul and James both recognize that it is God who uses It is God who saves sinners, but in these passages, he is affirming the reality that God uses means to save sinners. God uses the preaching and application of the gospel from one person to another to save sinners. The Spirit of God uses the gospel of God to save the people of God. James specifies this in the last phrase, a second promise that his work of restoration will cover a multitude of sins. This idea of covering sins could be viewed two different ways. He could be speaking of how once we've brought a wandering sinner to Jesus, we don't spread information about their past sinfulness. Thus, James would be condemning gossip here. Or James could be speaking of covering sins, as in Psalm 32.1, where David writes, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Paul quotes these words in Romans 4, 7 and 8 to further explain justification. I think this is more likely what James is talking about. But gossiping is off limits too. There may be people who have gathered with us as a church for months or years, and maybe they've been wearing a mask the whole time, pretending to believe what we believe, playing the part on Sundays, but who really don't know Jesus. As time goes on, we might see them being pulled away from even pretending, or their truth, true beliefs are revealed in conversations, or when they're tested by trial. And then one of us who knows Jesus recognizes that they seem to be missing that fundamental relationship. They've wandered away or been led astray or are self-deceived. If one of us can introduce them to Jesus, help them encounter Jesus for themselves, then when that happens for real in that wanderer's life, they will receive the forgiveness of their sins that Jesus offers. Their sins will be covered. Jesus will save them from the eternal destruction that they deserve. Well, as we conclude, let's just wrap this up by saying prayer works because God works. Prayer works because God works. I have, there's a little book in my office that's one of my favorite books on prayer. It's called It Happens After Prayer by a pastor named H.B. Charles, and he writes this, Prayer works, more accurately. God works when we pray. When we work, we work. When we pray, God works. And that is so true. I'll add another quote here from Timothy Keller in his big book on prayer, which is also quite excellent. He says, Prayer is simply the key to everything we need to do and be in life. Amen. And so what a task that we are called to at the end of the book of James. Not only this great task of bringing wanderers back to Jesus, but also this call to pray in every situation of life, when life is going well, when life is going hard, when we feel good, when we feel bad, when we feel sick. Prayer is appropriate in all circumstances. One final quote from Charles Spurgeon. He writes, We cannot all argue, but we can all pray. We cannot all be leaders, but we can all be pleaders. We cannot all be mighty in rhetoric, but we can all be prevalent in prayer. That's the challenge, folks, that we would be prevalent in prayer. Would you pray now toward that end that we would all become more prevalent in prayer? Father, we need your spirit to empower us to pray, to summon us to pray, to move us to pray, to enable us to pray rightly. We have assurance in your word that even when we don't know what to pray, 
Jesus himself is interceding for us. The Spirit is interceding for us with groans, unutterable groans that only you can understand. And we have the confidence and the certainty that the Spirit always prays according to your will. We do not. So let us not be discouraged by the problems of prayer, that the ways that we experience prayer and we struggle with prayer, let that not discourage us, but may we keep pressing on so that we become more prevalent in prayer, expressing our faith, expressing our dependence on you day by day, moment by moment. We open our mouths right now to say, we need you. We need your help. We need you to be moving in us, using us to make the most of our lives. We need you. We can do nothing apart from you. So would you help us to express our dependence verbally in prayer? Help us to pray with people and for people. Help us to pray without ceasing. In Jesus' name, amen.